Hello, my name is James Kerr Reed, and welcome to Crossing the Void podcast from Self Startups, where we get expert insight from leaders in the B2B tech startup space to help make founders' journeys from seed to Series A a little bit easier. I hope you find it insightful, interesting, or inspiring, or hopefully a combination of all three. So, welcome to Crossing the Void podcast from Self Startups. My name is James Kerr Reed. I'll be playing your host today. I'm joined by Marcus Love, the co-founder of Love Ventures. Thanks, James, for having me on the show. Great to have you here. So before we get into the content, it'd be great if you could give an introduction to you, Love Ventures, and how you came to start your business. Sure. So my background is I spent uh, nearly 10 years in Paris. I moved there when I was 22. I spent nearly four years at Capgemini, the large IT consultancy. I worked in a number of verticals, but mainly uh, financial services and telecoms. I then moved to a startup uh, in a very interesting period. It was 2000, 2001. So I rapidly turned to a start down. But I learned so much in that year and saw that first uh, dot-com boom and crash very, very firsthand. Um, I then worked in various sales roles and then I decided to move back to London. So I moved in 2005 to London. Uh, I'm a Londoner, I'm born and bred, so I was was coming back here. Uh, And I moved into the city. Uh, I always wanted to work uh, in finance and work with investors, and I moved into independent equity research, which is an interesting space in itself because you're not tied to a big bars bracket investment bank. You don't have to have a house view. And I've rapidly formed a close bond uh, with my investor clients to be able to formulate my own opinion and to be able to look for very exciting growth stocks. So I spent uh, eight of those years with a company called William O'Neill, which is a US headquartered uh, equity advisory shop. And I was looking for very strong growth stocks and mega trends, which I could get into client portfolios. And during that period, I started angel investing. So in 2015, I started going to crowdfunding events uh, with Crowdcube and Cedars, uh, meeting founders face-to-face and started angel investing. That was the beginning of my uh, investing journey outside uh, equities, uh, listed equities. And I had to train my mind to look for a whole bunch of new things. So uh, founder market fit, uh, looking at investment decks, uh, working out the size of a market and a ton of other metrics uh, which don't exist in a public domain. So my brain had been trained to look at 13F filings and Apple and Amazon and all these companies. And now I was looking at companies where there was relatively scant information and a small team. And I loved it. Uh, I took to it like a, a duct of water, was spending more time doing this. And I built out an angel portfolio of 20 companies in total, backing uh, success stories like Revolut, which I invested in at Series A. And this led to Love Ventures because a lot of the people around me were co-investing with me. They were asking what I was looking at. They wanted to join in. And uh, Love Ventures was born out of this. So I started Love Ventures with my brother, Adrian. His background is in property. And uh, we founded the firm back in uh, 2020 at the start of the pandemic. Fantastic. What a journey there from from finance to startups to having your own fund, lots of skills and lots of experience on a global scale realised there. So let's look at this funding gap between C to Series A. As an investor yourself that obviously invests in angel rounds and obviously now with Lump Ventures as a fund, you know, is there a particular things that startups need to get right in order to appeal to investors and prove that they can scale their company with your investment? Absolutely. So you look at the, the, the first part of that sort of funding gap. What we discovered during our angel investing uh, experience was that there is a genuine funding gap, obviously, in the UK. 
something like 83% of startups don't reach Series A. And the number one reason is because they run out of money. Um, the second reason is probably because they don't quite have product market fit, or simply it's just uh, not really a great idea and it doesn't, doesn't fly. So my job really is to focus on finding the best founders uh, in that journey and then seeing if we can help get them to Series A. Um, so there are a number of things that we look for that we think they need to have in order to be successful and to scale. So the most obvious of those is probably product market fit. Um, we spend a lot of time looking at that. It's something I spent a lot of time trying to improve on myself. Uh, it's not always easy, if I'm being honest. A lot of companies come to us and they think they found product market fit. And actually, we're like, you haven't quite yet, you know, come back. And we talk to them over a six or 12 month period and then be they become investable. Some companies, you know, I go in thinking they found product market fit. And if I'm being perfectly honest, there's still a bit of hacking going on. It's quite messy at Seed Series A. Uh, if I look at the 15 or so companies that we've backed out of Love Ventures Funds 1 and 2 so far, there's maybe up to a quarter of them that had some sort of pivot uh, in some way, shape or form. Um, so it's an interesting time for those startups because they're still trying to evaluate uh, what is the right product for the market. Um, we then spend a lot of time on you know, customer acquisition and go-to-market strategy. These are growth companies. They need to be able to grow and scale. We look closely at team, obviously, before we invest. Um, and then there are a number of things that we do post-investment to be able to assist those companies. So in, in Love Ventures, we have a very experienced uh, team of advisors, uh, four of whom sit on the investment committee. And three out of four of those founders uh, are exited themselves. Those they're exited entrepreneurs. So they've been there and done that. And so they can come along and help these founders that we back who are going through a similar journey. So really it's about identifying, you know, similar issues that they all need to go through to be able to scale. Uh, so the hiring plans, product roadmap and strategy, uh, funding and co-investment, it's important to have the right investors on board, getting Series A ready. So we have a scorecard of what they need to go to to get Series A ready. Um, and then just helping them where we can with online distribution and getting out the, the noise about how great they are and why they're the best in their space. Yeah, fantastic. There's, there's quite a bit to get right there. Talking about this go-to-market strategy and product market fit, what does that mean to a seed or Series A startup in this domain? So they've moved from pre-seed or seed where it's been effectively a side hustle or an idea that's germinated and they have customers. Okay, these customers have customers. So we at our ventures have a £10,000 a month minimum revenue cap they had to be achieving that to be able to be invested in by us. Uh, that's not the case for all VCs, like some will invest at pre-seed where they're pre-revenue. But we need to see that. So there is something there. They're selling something. But really what we work on see product market fit is that that product is effectively a fit for the market, um, that they've done a certain amount of analysis around it, that it's working, that we can see that it's working. And they might have had several iterations of the product to get to that moment. Some companies take a long time, as, as I mentioned, to get to that level. So there could be a bit of tweaking around it and there could be a bit of discussion. We sometimes engage with companies before we're able to invest. They don't have to be at that 10K. They might be at four or 5K a month of revenue and that's fine. We speak to them and we engage with them. They might not even be raising. Companies meet VCs outside the fundraising circle, um, be it online, be it at events. And they might be, well, look, we're not raising right now, but we wouldn't mind talking to you when we do come to raise. So that's when the conversation can start. And really it's about building that trust and that relationship because it is a two-way process. 
we might be investing as a VC into a company, but they want to know that the investor coming onto their cap table is a trusted partner that they can work with over a long period of time because it's difficult to effectively get rid of them and because they want the same thing. It's the right outcome for everyone. So it is a two-way process and it's a bit like a dating process, as we, as we all know. Yeah, so I've got two follow-up questions from that. The first is, any best practices with testing that validity of your product market fit? Are there things you've seen that have worked well with the startups you've invested in where, like you said, they might go through a couple of evolutions or iterations with their product? The first thing is we do quite a lot of um, background checks. So we'll go and talk to customers uh, of the company to see what their, their view is. Uh, we do quite a lot of competitor analysis to see where they fit in their competitive landscape. That's something we're quite hot on in due diligence is asking them exactly how are you better than XYZ competitor, if there is one. Um, and we want to hear the response very, very clearly and know why they're going to be better than another firm. Otherwise, someone else out there is already doing what they do. And we want to know the size of the market as well. So there's a whole bunch of things outside the, the product market fit that will di- dictate whether that strategy is successful or not. Um, and we'll engage with more than one member in the team. So obviously we speak to founders, but the companies we uh, back tend to have, let's say, eight to 25 employees at time of investment. So there should be product managers we can speak to and a head of product, um, a head of strategy, um, and we will do a wider due diligence with that team just to validate what they're doing. Yeah, that makes absolute sense. And my second question was around the dating game and finding the strategic partner. What are your top tips as well for startup founders to find the right partner as an investor? So for founders, they need to get someone who has not just a check, but the ability to help them on their journey and get to the next level. So in the UK, we're fortunate to have a very good um, angel uh, network um, and an ecosystem. Uh, just in fintech, for example, there are a ton of fintech angel investors who are very useful at pre-seed and seed that help companies by opening their contact book, by opening doors, by helping them with product market fit. Um, so there, there are a number of ways of bringing in those angels or angel networks, or you can just find them on LinkedIn or social media. So that's a great way to get started. As they progress through their fundraising journey and into the seed level, they need to be looking at seed investors that can help. Again, we're not just a check. It's companies that have been there and done it that have that experience that can come in and assist them on their journey. So where we operate, for example, is at Seed Plus. So the last check before Series A and then at Series A. Because companies have found product market fit, but they just need help to get to that next level, that's also where we think we can add the most value. It's early enough for us to be interesting and for us to be able to add value and valuations are lower. And it's late enough for us that they've got to a certain level where we think they've got something and we can actually help them grow it. So we like to think we're offering not just a check. I would say most VCs out there say that and we do it where we think we can add value. So we have a a scorecard for Series A, uh, a menu of services, if you will, that we can offer. And we'll sit down and say, where do you actually need the most help? And if they don't need help on the other stuff, that's fine. And we're going to leave them do what they do best because we're backing founders who are very good. They're often on their second company. They've often succeeded, which is great. They've often failed. That's great too. You know, in the UK, I think there's a stigma around failing, actually where Silicon Valley was partly built on failure. We get up and we go again. So the companies that we back have founders who are probably uh, 30 to 35 years of age. They've often had a previous experience. And like I said, it could be a success or a failure. 
Yeah, there's a massive stigma, like you say, in the UK around failing. And actually, failure teaches us a lot of lessons as well. That sometimes success doesn't teach us. So when founders come to you, what are some of the big mistakes you see them making when trying to seek your partnership and investment? Yes, this is really interesting. The number one thing I would encourage founders to do is really understand the thesis of invest of the investor. I think people uh, in their maybe their busy days just fling things out, and it's a kind of cut, copy and paste, and they're just hoping to get a meeting. I think they would do better to be a bit more targeted and think of it as having maybe an A list and a B list of your targets. And if your A list of uh, VC investors consisted of five names, go to your B list first, try and obtain meetings with them. If you don't get invested, that's fine. Learn from that experience and then take your A game to that A list. That's my first recommendation is really work hard and understand the thesis of the investor. We see too many people that come in, they don't fully know about us and what we do. Uh, and, and frankly, that's not good enough. You know, we would save a lot of time. I go into the, every company meeting knowing what the company does, having reviewed the deck, having re reviewed the internal notes that our team has prepared, and I have my questions ready to go pretty much at the start of the meeting. So uh, I'll let the meeting go forward, but obviously I will come to those questions. And I would encourage them to do the same. So um, we would like uh, founders to ask us questions as well, not enough ask us about the added value we say we're going to provide um, or how we're going to help or post-investment, what happens. There's a ton of questions they could ask. They could just ask one or two. That would be useful. Um, other things we don't really like too much are reading off a deck. Uh, we've probably got a deck. If we want them to go through it, that's fine. Most good founders start at the beginning and say, how would you like to play this? Do you want to see a deck? Do you want to hear our story? Um, and, and we go from there. But we don't like companies that just come on and read off the deck. We can see full well what's on the screen ourselves. We're much more interested in the storytelling, you know, where people have come from, their journey to date, what they're doing, what the problem is, what the solution is, how they're going to change things. Um, two last ones. One is city projections. We see a lot of companies with crazy hockey stick growth, which just would be great, but it's not realistic. So just come with sensible uh, uh, projections. If you're a pre-seed company, your aim really is to get that meeting. Hopefully you'll get investment from one or two of the meetings that you're doing out of the many, and you're trying to get to that next level, which is Series A. And at Series A, you're going through to Series B. So yes, have a sensible forecast and not silly projections. And last but not least, but probably the most important one for me is manage your time. If you've got a 45-minute meeting and you've got through at least half an hour and you're, they're not engaged and you haven't got through the main points of what your company does, you're failing. Uh, I make up my mind pretty much within five to 15 minutes if this company is investable. And the only reason I go beyond that time personally is one, so I'm learning, two, so I'm not being rude to them, and uh, three, because I want to give them benefit of the doubt that something's going to come out where I think, hang on, have I missed something? So I'm questioning myself during that period. But frankly, if you've gone too long into the meeting and you've lost the room, you should be aware of that. And you need to be able to manage time and check in maybe after five, 10 minutes. I, I, is this good? Is this the right pace? Would you like me to go faster? Do you have any questions at this point? Or would you like to do them at the end? Manage your time. You've got the meeting. Now use it to your advantage. Yeah, really good tips there. And in terms of that first five to 15 minutes, what are the evaluations you're making to make that initial diagnosis of the startup? Uh, so probably number one is team. Like who have I got in front of me? It's probably a founder. I'm looking quite quickly at founder market fit. Uh, have they got experience with the sector? 
Had they uh, maybe had a startup experience before, as we mentioned? Uh, I'm looking at the wider team as well. It's not normally till further in the deck, but because you've got someone in front of you presenting, you're already in the back of your mind thinking, uh, are they backable, uh, let alone the company? Um, then you're obviously very quickly onto the company. I mean, that's that's almost like a 30 second or one minute thing. Sadly, humans are programmed to make impressions of people within 30 seconds. It's the way we are. Uh, but pretty rapidly, you're focusing on their presentation and what they're presenting. And is there a real problem and is their solution really one that's addressing it? We've also got um, into a funny environment where people go and create, uh, I think, solutions to problems that never existed. So we're often in that dynamic where we're just saying, is there a true problem? Is there a solution? And then looking at the size of the market and all these classic things. So problem, solution, team, uh, traction, uh, competitor analysis, and the funding that they're going to do and what they're going to do with it. So we don't look at much beyond that initially. That's fairly classic. Um, but I'm in my mind ticking things off. And actually, we have a number of investors in our in our second fund, which we're deploying from right now. We have an investment management agreement in place and we have to stick to our criteria. That is my obligation to my investors to be checking a number of things. So founder market fit, £10,000 of monthly revenue, large total addressable market, uh, IP, scalable, path to profitability. So in my mind, I'm ticking these things off. I might not directly be asking questions on those because it might just come up. They might just say we've done 50,000 of revenue last month. Fine, I don't need to ask that question. But in my mind, I'm ticking those things off as I go through it. And a lot of that boils down to experience. Uh, I'm fortunate enough to be, you know, having done this for a while now and honed our investment strategy. So it, it gets easier as you go along. And you know quite quickly if this company is one, you can progress to the next stage or, or maybe say, no, it's not for us. Yeah, completely agree. That's really helpful, Marcus. And... When you're looking at investors or, you know, vestable founders, should I say, has anything changed in your investment strategy over the years? Okay, so first of all, the simple answer is a little bit. Um, things like the path to profitability has not changed for us, but I think it has for others. So I've answered your question in a slightly funny way, but we'd be more, um, more rigorous on that than ever before. So we've had it in our investment thesis from day one that we want to find companies that have a proven business model and a path to prosperity. We're, we're very rigorous on that. So we really will look at that 10K minimum runway, look to how their business model is working and see them get to profitability. What has changed more recently in the more tricky times that we're seeing is probably checking that runway. Um, you know, we want to see at least six to 12 months runway if we're looking at a company some companies come to us with under three months and that's almost a distressed situation. It could be an opportunity to go in and maybe negotiate a lower valuation, but it's it's not really what we do. We want to find a company where it's well-managed, where founders are not leaving fundraising to the last minute. Um, I think we push harder on product market fit. As I mentioned to you earlier, I'm still learning every day myself. And I think it's something we're pushing harder and harder on and getting better and better at as well. Uh, again, companies can change and pivot and they might not have found product market fit, possibly till series A really, if we're being honest, but we certainly want to, to move the needle on that and make sure we're doing our DD as, as much as we can. And within that, the other area I'm looking at is where they are versus competitors. As I mentioned earlier, we asked that question, but I'm really uh, zooming in on that very closely right now to make sure they know where they are. And it's quite a, you know, big market out there, but it's it's quite small in some ways. You know, we work in a funny world where there's probably someone that might have tried it 
certainly in a foreign country and possibly here back home. And in fact, some of the best ideas are taking something that you've seen overseas or on holiday and bringing them out here and then doing it. So is someone else out there doing it the same as you or better? And how, how are you going to do something that's different? So I think that's really where uh, I've started to look at things slightly differently and, and more closely in the last certainly six to 12 months. Yeah, the path to profitability is a big one at the moment. That's what we're hearing in the market from where we stand as well. From your experience also, from your desired outcome, when do you think people should show that path to profitability or at least break even and then ultimately become a profit-making company in terms of rounds um, that the funding will go through? So it really depends on the sector. Uh, if I look at fintechs, we invest across three sectors, fintech, prop tech, consumer tech. If I look at fintech and I look at the companies we backed in, in fund one, which would include companies like Banked or Timeit or Circa 5000, um, they're fairly capital intensive businesses. And for the majority of these sorts of fintechs, you're looking for around three years out from investment for uh, break even. So it's quite a long time. In the prop techs that we back, it can be much sooner than that. It could be six months or 12 months or possibly sooner. They, they, they're selling uh, sometimes workflow products or SaaS products where if it's working and the team is quite lean and mean, they don't have to go overboard on hiring and they can just grow at a sensible rate. And back to your previous question, what's changed in the, you know, the current landscape is that people have become more sensible. They're hiring a little bit less aggressively salaries possibly come down a bit for uh, good product uh, and tech folk uh, where previously there was a bit of a battle to get them in and the boot has moved from the foot of the founder to the foot of the investor in the last 12 months so there's been quite a lot of change in that regard and I think it's healthy actually to have uh, a certain equilibrium uh, every so often in the market. Mm. Yeah from what we've heard sort of Series B is now becoming the new norm for most SaaS products to break even. And then by Series C, there really needs to be profitability, if not before. Is that what you've seen at the uh, progressive rounds beyond Series A as well? Yeah, it's what we're hearing. So we invest up Series A, not beyond at the moment. But you're right. And in, in fact, the, the supposed 1 million ARR that they were looking for at Series A is sometimes becoming more like a 2 million. Like numbers are definitely moving. It's becoming harder. Uh, people are having to knuckle down. It's not as easy to raise money. And there's competition for those dollars. So it's definitely what we're, what we're hearing and seeing for sure. Fantastic. Any last tips that you give to founders wanting to raise their C plus or Series A round, Marcus? Um, yeah, I go back to the advice I gave earlier about having their, their hit list of investors to go to. Don't be afraid to uh, reach out and nurture that network nice and early. You don't have to get in touch with an investor just when you're raising. Uh, you've got other opportunities to network with them. Um, join networks or clubs around you, whether you may be in London or Manchester or Edinburgh, because there are investor clubs around you. And as we said earlier, having good angels on board might help you as well. Um, and just just keep going, like failing now and again and getting up and going again is all part of it. It is We're in a tough environment for fundraising, for sure. Um, surround yourself with smart advisors that can help move you. Uh, we mentioned the decks and what we looked at earlier. We looked at, we always look at the immediate team, but we look at the advisory team very closely as well because we want founders to have good advice. So who's been there and done it that can help you, that you can bring into your advisory team that op opens the door to the right investors that can help you? Uh, that would be my advice at this stage because it's a long journey and you need to be able to turn to that uh, uh, those advisors 
And if you're a solo founder, I, I, I feel for you. I think it's tough. We often back uh, companies which have two founders because I think being a solo founder in particular is very tough. So um, I, I wish them well and they'll get through this period, which is a little bit tougher. And what about frequency of contact, just to build on that as well? So like you said, it is a dating game. It's also a nurturing game as well with investors. What frequency should people be communicating with investors to keep them warm, keep them updated with their progress along the way? Yeah, so the companies that we're tracking uh, that aren't quite investable, but that we're interested in, we normally get onto their monthly uh, mailing, monthly or quarterly. uh, So we at least have an idea of what they're up to. Uh, most of them are very happy to do that and keep us in the loop. Once we're into that sort of uh, dating game, um, then we're into sort of our, our process and we can invest as quickly as two weeks, but more normally between four and six weeks. So we want to be kept up to speed with what they're doing, doing during that period. Uh, and certainly post-investment, we want to have certainly monthly, if not quarterly, newsletters. And actually what we then do is do a, a post-investment strategy meeting where we bring in our advisors, sit down with a company, and we go back to that Series A scorecard of the two or three things that we could help with the most at that point in time. And then we check in regularly. And within Love Ventures, we track all of that within a CRM called Affinity, which just pulls it all in and we can see exactly where we are with each portfolio company. Um, but yeah, for, for prospective founders, certainly uh, a monthly or quarterly newsletter and just the occasional phone call. Don't be afraid to pick up the phone. I'm Slightly old school in that fashion, I spent 15 years in a city picking up the phone and making cold calls to people that wouldn't take my call. Um, We work in an environment which is actually slightly more friendly than that. I think you can call VC investors or uh, look them up on LinkedIn or Twitter and shoot them a message. And in general, they will get back to you. I think there's room where we can get better at it. I think the US is ahead of us in that regard. But I think that the UK is still a fairly open environment for doing business. And we work in an industry where people will or should get back to you, in in my belief. One last question before we finish. What advice have you got for founders to avoid falling across the finish line? We're seeing this quite a lot as well. You put a lot of effort into the sales and marketing campaign to get and secure investment. And then as soon as you get the money in the bank, there's a kind of relief factor. And you think, oh, I've made it. And then there's a sort of void for sometimes between three to six months after that investment comes in. Wow, super tough question. Uh, well, I'm a founder. I'm a founder of a, of a VC, and uh, I wouldn't want to give up. We, you know, we're loving what we're doing. And if I put the boots on the founder's foot, there must be a moment when you're realizing you're making it and to keep going. And there must also be a moment when you might have to say stop or change or pivot. And that's probably the hardest thing for them. And I can't speak for them. Uh, it, it depends on each company. I mean, if you've really tried everything and it's still not working, you know, you shouldn't be going. And I think saying goodbye to your project that you've had in mind for a long time is tough, but you might need to pivot or you might need to change a team member or dare I say a founder. So this is the toughest question and I I can't answer it. It's it's for each individual founder, but it's certainly what's going to make or break them as a, as a person, as an, as an experience of being a founder, because going through those tougher periods might make them and they might go on to more successful next company. So as I said earlier, we sometimes find founders who are on their second or indeed their third business and their previous ones haven't necessarily been successes. So all of this experience, you suck it in, 
And we learn as much in the down periods, if not more than in the, the good periods. As I mentioned, I was in a startup in 2000, 2001. I learned so much in those nine months, more than the previous four years of my, the early part of my career. And what we're seeing now is the same thing. People are learning more in the last two years than probably in the previous five because we've had a period during COVID when it was stop everything you're doing from March to July 2020. Then it was go, 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 text working, so off they go. Then it was stop, 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 and then it's go, go, go. And it's very hard for a founder to see through that and have a long-term vision and get people to buy into that vision, both internally, so their staff and their advisors and their boards, and externally, their investors that support them. So that's really, really tricky, and uh, it's, it's on the founder to do that. Fantastic. Thank you very much for your time, Marcus. Where's the best place to check out Love Ventures and connect with yourself? Sure. So the best way to find us is online on LinkedIn and on Twitter. Uh, we post regular content about uh, getting founded and what we look for. Um, that's the best way to, to, to find us today. Um, and we'll always respond to people for um, you know, a direct outreach uh, through, through that website. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Marcus. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening to Crossing the Void podcast from Self Startups. Please do like, subscribe and share and join us for more episodes coming soon. If you're not already signed up, we send a fortnightly partner newsletter to businesses and investors in the B2B tech startup field with market insights, relevant news and updates on our clients. We also send a fortnightly newsletter for B2B tech startup founders with content to help them on their journey from C to Series A. You can sign up to both on our website at southstartups.co.uk.